Well, hello, Bread of Life. It is an honor to be invited to talk with you a little bit today during this Advent season. I have, over the years, grown to love and respect your pastor, Ryan, and uh, love the work that you all are doing there in Ithaca. And in fact, my wife Tamara and I were born and raised in Binghamton, New York, and lived there for the first 40 years of our lives. And so Ithaca has had a special place in our lives. We have spent many days on the lakes and in the gorges, learning to love the natural beauty, but also learning to love the people that live there in Ithaca. And so I now serve as the rector of Church of the Apostles in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And I am so happy um, to serve in that manner. I also have been appointed as uh, the dean of the newly formed deanery in the Diocese of Christ, our hope. And so I'm also honored uh, to serve in that role. So happy to be with you uh, today. Like many, I am a huge fan of the great epic work Handel's Messiah. I frequently, frequently listen to, its, to it this time of year, and I often am struck by the first three pieces following the overture, which are based on one of our scripture passages from this morning, Isaiah chapter 40. The music in Handel's Messiah is light and airy. It proclaims the words of the prophet, comfort ye, comfort ye my people, and builds to the promise that her iniquity is pardoned. And then the music takes a lighter and even brighter tempo as we are promised that every valley shall be exalted and every mountain be made low. It is a beautifully expressed truth. Yet, the original lyrics to the songs spoken by the prophet Isaiah were issued in the midst of great darkness, loneliness, and despair. Listen to the words from Isaiah chapter 1 that describes the condition of the people of God and the world. A people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. The calling of assemblies I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. The house of Jacob is full of things from the east. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands and to what their fingers have made. The effects of sin, both personal and corporate, dominate homes and public structures. God has rejected the people's worship because it is designed to make them feel good, but ignores the real work of justice and mercy. The rulers are corrupt and ignore the good of most of the most vulnerable among them. God has rejected his people because they worship the idols of the world, including production, money, and materialism. The situation was bleak for the people of God then, and perhaps we hear some similarities now in our own situation. So I have often wondered if those hearing the promises of Isaiah 40 then and now are quietly thinking, yeah, right. Why should we find any hope in these promises, God? Where is the comfort? We don't hear the valley singing, God, you don't seem very gentle. Why should we believe your promises? 
It is as if God hears their thoughts and answers their complaints before they can be spoken. And Handel's telling of the story, the phrase interrupts all the joyful pronouncements with a booming proclamation found in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 5. Why should we believe you, God? The answer, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. In fact, in Handel's work, I love where it comes. It's in the middle of light and airy music, and then from the low end of the register. Why do we believe you, God? For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. We'll fast forward a few centuries in the story from the point of this proclamation. Let's go to the New Testament in Mark chapter 1 and look at the life of perhaps the key human character in the story of Advent, John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the preview of the unlikely birth of Jesus. He is the representation of Elijah prophesying that the words of God are true and are now beginning to come to light in Galilee. His preaching introduces Jesus' ministry and message of repentance. John is the indicator of an unlikely Savior, born in obscurity, living in humble conditions, and lacking the status symbols of other earthly power brokers. He is the forerunner to Jesus' death at the hands of petulant governors and lesser kings. At Church of the Apostles, we are considering two Advent themes this year, watch and hope. Watch and hope. From these passages of Scripture today, from Isaiah and from John, we find these themes, watch and hope. From Isaiah, we find the means of hope. We hope in the promises of God found in Isaiah because the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. The mouth of the Lord has spoken it. His promises are true and trustworthy and good and right. They are guaranteed and we can count on them because the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And so we hope in these promises. There is an aspect of hope that we are called to and it is undeniable in the Advent season through the prayers and the scriptures that we worship with, and that is this. The hope of the Lord includes patience. Often God's patience seems to us like in, it seems like inaction. And we join with the psalmist's familiar cry, how long, O Lord, how long? In hope, we are reminded that God is not slow as we consider slowness, but is patient because he desires for everyone to have a chance to come to repentance. In Advent, we are invited to hope that God is at work in the world, in the here and now, making things good and right. And that his patience gives us hope for our family and friends, our neighbors, our coworkers and strangers who are toiling under the weight of darkness and the absence of God's light. God's patience offers hope for the structures around us to bend to the will and the ways of God's justice and mercy. 
And as we hope under the patience of God, we are assured that one day his patience will come to its full and final completion and Jesus will return. The second advent will occur and the making of all things new will be finished. We hope, even patiently, because the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And we watch. We watch because the messenger of God, John the Baptist, points us in the right direction. John's entire ministry is summed up in one word, repent. Father Ryan spoke about repentance in his sermon last week. I just want to add one thought to his really excellent uh, thinking on this here. Repentance is a turning from the things that are contrary to God's will and ways. To turn from our own personal sin and to reject the corporate sin found in the structures of the world system. We turn from all forms of worship that are designed to make ourselves feel good, but ignore the real worship of justice and acts of mercy. We must turn from corrupt rulers that ignore the good of the most vulnerable among us. We must turn from the idols of the world, renouncing all false gods, including money and production and materialism. Yes, turning from is a part, a critical part of repentance, but it is not the entire practice. It is not the entire practice. For repentance to be repentance, we must turn toward Jesus by following the message and example of John the Baptist and others. I mean, John turned from all the trappings of earthly power and status. He and he lived in the desert and he ate bugs and he refused any worship of himself, saying clearly that he was unworthy to even untie the Messiah's sandals. Yes, John's message and action of repentance including, included turning from the things that are contrary to the will and work of God. But that is only half of what John did. John also turned toward. He turned toward Jesus. In my mind, I have a mental picture of Mark chapter 1 and the other places in the Gospels where John the Baptist's story and life are mentioned of John grabbing our attention by any means necessary, even including the weird clothes that he wore and his strange diet. It is as if John was saying to us all, look at, pay attention, pay attention. I want your attention. And then John says, now everybody turn with me and let's look. Let's look toward the coming king. He turned toward Jesus, pointing all those who will listen to watch for the promised Messiah. In Advent, we are invited to hope in the promise that comfort comes, wilderness is cleared, valleys sing, and all flesh will see his appearing because the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And we are invited to watch with John the Baptist by turning 
from anything that competes with our attention and focus in the direction of the once and coming King. It is an Advent where we watch and hope. We have a practice here at Church of the Apostles that we frequently engage with during our worship services following the sermon. We take one minute and we are just simply quiet before God. And we ask him uh, maybe specific questions. And so today I am going to invite you to spend one minute in quiet right now before I pray and close our time together. And if you've never been in a worship service or watching a video on screen, if you've never practiced being quiet for one minute, it can feel like a really long time, especially in this context. But let me encourage you that it is in the quietness of these places where God reveals to us his hope. He reveals to us that his promises are good. And he also reveals his things that we need to turn from and ways that we need to turn toward him. And so I'm going to ask you now to bow your head and close your eyes, get yourself quiet. And I will watch the time as we're quiet together for one minute. And so, God, we come now and we pray that you will help us to watch and hope for you this Advent season. That you will turn our hearts toward your hope and invite us to join you in your patience. And that you will turn our affections and our attentions toward you as we watch for your second Advent, your coming again. We ask this all in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.